very much aware of who I am because I spent so much time analyzing my life and analyzing this music and how it made me feel. So, you know, that's why that, that line from Fitzgerald really sticks. Like, all I know is myself. But, like, I know I'm a writer. So all my writing is a representation. I used to tell people I don't take selfies. I write articles. You want to see me, though? Like, I'm in, I'm in the work. From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore, and this is the second part of our interview with DJ Booth's Joe Phillips. In case you missed it, last week we dropped the first half of the interview, so be sure to check that out before you listen to this one. If you have listened to last week's episode, then go right ahead into the second half. Enjoy. Well, you've mentioned before that you hope to someday earn a Pulitzer Prize in writing, and that's, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't that's, real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, that's what I was going to ask you about because, like, that's a dream that I, I share, and I was always kind of of the really? perception that I wasn't, you know, uh, that music journalism isn't what was going to get me a Pulitzer Prize. You know, it was going to be in some other form of, that's uh, you know, government accountability, watchdog reporting, or like, you know, just like local community reporting that I was going to do that. Uh, would eventually like work towards a Pulitzer Prize. So would you say, you know, that you don't really envision a Pulitzer Prize for music journalism anymore? Or if you do, you know, what do you kind of envision a Pulitzer Prize in music journalism looking like? I don't know why I wrote that. I did not believe it. (laughs) (laughs) That's manifesting. You're just trying trying to make it happen. Again, it's it's coming from when you you operate on such a, what you consider the high level. And I've always been just trying to reach a high level. Like, there's days where I don't feel like I'm, I'm hitting that point. Like, I look at Kobe a lot. I look at Kobe because I feel like Kobe hit a point where, like, we can recognize him being one of the best NBA players because of what he did on that court. So I always try to approach the gym like, like I'm Kobe. Um, but I didn't really, again, this is, just, this is just a funny thing. I didn't really research journalism or writing or anything. I just thought I could write sentences. And I feel like if I can write sentences, if I know music, then whatever the best in feel gets, then I would probably have it. And I didn't get none of it. So <laughs> it wasn't anything that I took uh, as a loss. I just figured that I needed to get better. I always feel like I just need to improve. And then every time I, I improve, something, so I get something. I always get something. It's weird. I always ought to get a job offer. The best job offer I've ever gotten was when they were looking for a, a staff writer at Rolling Stone. And uh, the, the, he's a former editor. Man, I think his name is Chris. I can't remember my guy's name. But I remember he reached out to me. He was like, hey, yo, we're interested in you for uh, this position. Can you send over your, your resume? And then we did a phone interview. And I didn't get the job. But getting the job offer was like winning a prize. Because yeah. like you never expect someone from Rolling Stone to call you to interview you for a job. Like, I made it to Rolling Stone. Like, even though I don't have a byline there, it feels like I made it to Rolling Stone because I made it to their radar. So it's like, what else can I get? 
Like, if I'm operating at this level, what else can I get? And that's just the way I've always operated. It's just like, keep writing, keep writing, because things are coming your way through these words. Because I really don't do nothing else. Like, I don't have, like, a really crazy brand. I don't have any, like wonky videos like i don't really have a, a a hive or anything of that nature like i don't have that many followers i just write so everything i get from writing to me is another milestone anything like anyone that calls me anyone that retweets me any representation that these words got further than my bedroom and i'm doing something right so it's just like why can i get all the awards why not believe I'm going to get everything coming to me. That's how I feel. Because I'm working for it. I'm always going to work for what I get. It's never not work. It's always going to be work. Like, people don't give me things. Like, I'll work for them. We've kind of, like, talked about how just you becoming a writer and kind of your journey up to this point has needed a whole lot of fate and happenstance, I guess. And I wanted to ask if, like, you see writing as your purpose. Man, the P word is a strong word, man. I know. I wanted to ask that specifically because I knew. I knew that it's a massive question. But hearing you talk about it, I can't imagine you doing anything else because of the way that you're in, like, you live it. I kind of hate it, though, for that very reason. Because it's like, once you do something like this for so long, you have such an attachment to it, you really can't do nothing else. Like, I was just thinking, I saw an article about, like, like music journalism's dying. And I was like, man, I hope this thing don't die. I really can't do nothing else. <laughs> I put, <laughs> like, a, I like, put a lot into this. Am I going back to Olive Garden? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, what? Like, it's funny because the skills you have for this, obviously you can put them in other things. But I always think like I can't go like go to AutoZone with my resume with DJ Booth and OK Player and like, like who's gonna hire me? <laughs> I don't have good credentials outside of music journalism. So if the whole space dies, well I'm fucked. Cause what was all this for? But part of it also is that I don't look at writing as a purpose, but I definitely feel like I chose it. And a part of that choosing is that I feel like I owe it to myself to take it as far as I can take it. Like, sometimes I'm a little stubborn about, like, pivoting the video. Like, why would I do that? Like, I'm a writer. Oh, do a podcast. Like, why would I do that? I'm a writer. Like, I have a podcast with my homies. But, like, so many people have told me, yo, you need to do a podcast. And I'm always apprehensive because it's just, like, it's not the same as publishing words. Absolutely. It's not the same it's just not the same. It's not the same feeling. It's not the same textures. It's not the same idea patterns. And it's kind of like, I'm so resistant to letting it go. Like, I hold on to it very tightly out of both, like, love, admiration, and a bit of selfishness. Like, I picked this thing. I let it go when I say I let it go. I picked it. That's the weird part about like not having a background in writing. I remember my first editor, Nathan, he was like, yo, you ever you ever wrote for your school paper? I was like, no. He was like, what? He was like, he was like, you, so you didn't do no writing before this? I was like, not really. He was like, that's odd. I was just like, well, I picked it. Like, I picked this thing. Like, I feel like if I pick basketball, that's why I understand why J. Cole wants to try out for the NBA. 
because he feels like I picked rap and rap got me this far. So if I pick mm-hmm. basketball, why can't I go to the league? Like, what's stopping me from playing with the best of the best? That's how I feel. Like, if I pick this thing, I put in the hours, I put in the work, what's stopping me from being in the company of the best to do it? I picked it. I'm not going to pick anything to lose. I'm not going to pick anything to be mediocre. I picked it to be the best. It's interesting, though, because in that piece that he, you read, the, uh, the, the, uh, the piece that he wrote, I'm going to forget the publication. Did you read mm-hmm. his? Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's in he well, he also does talk about in that piece the reason he didn't initially pick basketball, which was because he had an innate understanding that he probably wasn't going to be good enough. <laughs> but now so it's like what changed about that now? Is it because he ga- garnered so much success in the thing that he oh, Ryan tell me Players Tribune shout out. Um, but, uh, yeah, is it because he garnered you think it's because he garnered so much success in music? He's like, wait a minute, I, maybe I was wrong. Because obviously you picked you picked writing because you were clearly very good at it, and people were like, "Oh my God, you've never done this before. How are you this good?" But like, it took so <laughs> many years for people to have that "Oh my God" moment, and that's like the funny part. Because like, I definitely went like the first probably like four years of just trying to be a writer to like a lot of crickets, to like nothing. <laughs> like, yeah. it was so many times I could have quit. I, I didn't even tell my parents I wanted to be a writer. That's how afraid I was that it was gonna fail. Like, my parents really didn't know it was real until I told them I was quitting Olive Garden to work for DJ Booth. And they were like, what? I was like, yeah, I want to write about music. And they were like, why? It's just like, oh, because I can. And then when I brought them the book, it was like, oh, this is real. So that's the thing. It's like, I, I don't talk about the things that I'm doing because I don't put expectations on things. I put expectations on myself. And I think Cole's very similar. And it's not success that I think what rap gave him. It might have just been confidence. And it also might have been time. Rap might have afforded him enough time to get in the gym, to spend enough time working on his game. So you get to a point where if I go out and perform in front of like 100,000 people, I don't think there's anything I can't do. I think it would be very hard-pressed to find someone who finds what's impossible once you start performing in front of large crowds, once you start making a bunch of money, it's like, why not be an actor? Why not be an astronaut? Look, 21 Savage wants to fly planes. He's going to be a pilot in a couple of years. But it's not just because he wants to fly planes. It's because he has the confidence to know that like, if I pick it, if I obsess over it, why would I narrow what I can do? Like, I have to try. Like, it's a tryout for a reason. He's going to try out. And I believe that, like, part of what's going to help him get on the team, potentially, is the confidence that I can do it. I don't know if that was his intention. That sounds very Kanye-esque. I mean, Kanye, <laughs> Kanye, Kanye is probably the best representation of, like, self-confidence. Kanye believed in himself in, like, a way that I believe... Most people should not believe in themselves. Like, you have that much <laughs> self-confidence, like, you, you might try and take over the world, you know? Like, that's, that's the I'll become president one day confidence. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's a level of confidence that I feel like is supreme. Like, it goes against all laws, all physics. And sometimes that's what I think happens. Like, it's funny. Every day I look at my phone, I think about how Steve Jobs said, think different. And I had to remind myself, like, I'm only holding this phone because he thought differently. I'm pretty sure people would have thought Steve Jobs was crazy at one point in time, too. But really, 
he was always right. So that's the thing. Like, you just got to kind of believe in what you believe in and you got to think differently. If everyone's telling you no, you have to believe yes. And when you're right, they're going to be the ones in the stands cheering and you're going to be the ones throwing up that game winner. Because you chose to, not them. So can you see yourself, like, having gained the confidence from writing, I'm guessing, I don't know, but uh, can you see yourself pushing into something else? Just other forms of writing, potentially. Mm. I don't know. It's funny. <laughs> like, I try not to think about myself too often. Right. It's, it's almost I- like... Uh, I think thinking too much about yourself is a vanity thing. Like mm. I try, I try and like keep my confidence on a leash. It's funny because like I used to say that uh, like you lucky I chose writing and not something else. Because if I choose something else, then like I'm gonna obsess over it and then I'm going to get what I want. That's how I feel. Yeah. But I don't know if that's true. I just know that like I'm talking to you guys and I wasn't talking to you five years ago. Mm-hmm. So I did something right. Mm-hmm. So if I obsess over anything like I obsessed over writing, like how can I not have it? And that's my thing. It's like, well, you got to keep that in check. Like you got to keep that ego in check if you start to believe in yourself that much. Because then like I feel like we get a lot of weird projects from people because they just have that supreme confidence, but they don't really have the talent. They don't have the knowledge or they just believe like, oh, I can do this because it's me. It's like, nah. Like that's why I try to obsessively research. I have to remind myself you don't know enough. Yeah. As long as you keep yourself in check, I think you can eventually do anything. But don't ever let your ego convince you that you're better than you are. Because then you're probably going to end up, one, making something that's going to make you unhappy, and two, looking a little foolish. So I think I try to always not look crazy. Hmm. I have one last question on the existential P word uh, (laughs) tip. And it's a different P word, it's philosophy. So if you had to distill your writing philosophy into a couple sentences, or however many sentences you want, what would you say? That's a good one. <laughs> I like the hard ones. Mm, um, I write in philosophy. That's a good one. Let me see. Let me see if I can pull something good out for you. I don't want to let you down. <laughs> it's, I think obsession is healthy when you always choose subjects that you're passionate about. Like, I always lean into passion. Like, if you're passionate about anything, you got to lean into it almost like at an obsessive level. And the thing about obsession, I think it just really shows you how much you care about a thing. Like you can yes. like something passively. That's not real. Like until you're ready to get into the nooks and crannies of something, into a subject, like you really have to jump into a subject. You have to wear it around. You have to think about it. You have to dream about it. You have to love it. Like you have to care for it in a way that allows you to represent it. Yes. You know, I can't write about anything I'm not passionate about. I can't write about anything I don't obsess over. Because then, as soon as the writing is boring, 
I'm bored. And then it's not, it's not going to work. So you really got to lean into obsession, but only what you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about it, then don't waste your time. Don't waste that subject's time. It's just not, it's not going to do well for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're a great writer. If you're a great writer and you're working with a subject that you're not passionate about, then it's, you're probably not going to have great writing. Always lean into passion and always do it obsessively. I think it's really amazing how like you can tell how passionate you are through your writing and through how like bits and pieces of, you know, what you've written really come across and like how you talk and how you speak and how you act. And in particular, I think of um, what you said a minute ago about how Kanye uh, there's a lot to learn about self-confidence and vanity from Kanye because that reminds me of literally my second favorite essay from your book is the one on what you learned about self-confidence through Kanye. And mm-hmm. so I can tell, I can tell that like you are like passionate about that and ob- like with an obsession on that to a level, because that's not like just something you wrote. So like hearing that actually come across and like how you talk and in your philosophy is sort of like a little like Easter egg to me. Like that's incredible. Man, I live all my writing. It's crazy to think that, but I do. And it's weird because sometimes like I write pieces because it's like who I am. Like I, I think maybe that's part of what has kept me writing for so so long is because I, I think like writing, becoming a writer has helped me become a man in a lot of different ways. Like I think I learned more about myself through words than I probably could if I was just living without writing. If I was living without doing this, I think I wouldn't have such a deep connection to self. I'm very much aware of who I am because I spent so much time analyzing my life and analyzing this music and how it made me feel. So, you know, that's why that that line from Fitzgerald really sticks. Like, all I know is myself. But, like, I know I'm a writer. So all my writing is a representation. I used to tell people I don't take selfies. I write articles. You're going to see me, though. Like, I'm in, I'm in the work. I think also, like, when it comes to learning from your work and learning through your work, um, another article that's specific to the book that stands out to me is your piece um, that you wrote just for the book that was I Was Wrong About Illmatic. <laughs> um, that was a, a, re- a response to piece. the I Don't Like Illmatic piece. Um, and I don't, you know, you don't often see people, especially people with a platform. Um, you know, I think of journalists, uh, podcasters, videographers, you don't often see people with these platform admit that they are wrong about something, let alone like willfully go back and correct themselves. Um, so I'm sure it's not the only example of how your perspective on something you've written has changed over the years. So what made you feel like this specific piece is one that deserved a follow up? Man, first off, I was a baby when I wrote that Illmatic piece. Mm-hmm. I was a baby. And the thing is, I still, I understand exactly what that piece represents to me. Because it definitely was a period in my life where I did not like Illmatic. It's because I did not understand that hip-hop from that, from that age and that lens. Like, it's not what I was looking for. Um, but trying to publish an article like that, I had, and I was, I was very new to DJ Booth at that time too. That wasn't, that was one of my earlier pieces, I believe, definitely within that first year. So, uh, I definitely remember talking to the editor of the book of Yo, and I think he brought it up. I think he mentioned it 
that he wanted to do a response piece to that one. And it took me a minute to actually write that article because I was trying to figure out exactly how to... It's funny responding to yourself, especially looking back at yourself and trying to uh, articulate exactly where you were wrong without completely ignoring who you were then. Because sometimes we're wrong, but we're, we're actually more ignorant than wrong. It's just like you, you weren't, you did not have the necessary context or the necessary maturity to appreciate what that was, which is something I think all writers kind of just have to be careful with is like making sure that you tackle subjects that when you look back at them, not only are you able to recognize who you were, but your maturity range. I try not to get too far out of my range nowadays. Like I try to remember exactly who I am and be like, all right, yo, don't overstep because you don't want to have another apology piece or a response piece. Like you want to, <laughs> you want to get it right the first time. And uh, writing that one, I think I was also just really thinking about classic albums and really thinking about like what those words mean and and uh, also like really fully coming like having this book. It's like, oh, it was like a milestone. Because I didn't think I was going to get a book until I turned 30. I turned 29 this year. And I was like, man, I'm ahead. So, like, if you already got a book, you got to kind of start carrying yourself like an author. You know, you got to, you got to, you're not a child anymore. Like I said, I was a baby when I wrote that first piece. And, like, getting this book was kind of stepping to, like, you're not a child anymore. So, you can't write like a child. You can't think like a child. You can't act like a child. And it was, it was, yeah, it's just trying to hold yourself accountable for the childish things you said and done, and also showing that like you can mature and yet you're ready to be a man. It's interesting. I, the way you describe it is like a, you were ignorant before and then you became less ignorant, so you had a different appreciation. It just reminds me of a book that I was um, assigned to read in school in fifth grade and then reassigned to read in high school and how different yeah. the, the feeling of it was. They, I still don't know why the hell they assigned the giver for us in fifth grade because like there's no fifth grader who can understand that. Y'all book. were but advanced. Then, then I, we weren't so because no one understood the giver in fifth grade. But then I reread it in high school and I was like, wow, this is a whole new book and I feel like I have such a so much more of an understanding of this now. Have you ever felt that way with any book that you've read? Gatsby. Gatsby. Yeah. I did not appreciate Gatsby in high school. I took AP literature, and whatever reason, that teacher did not deliver that magnificent book the way it should be read. <laughs> um, but I, I feel that way about a lot of things. Uh, James Baldwin. I read James because a lot of James's stuff obviously is old because he's old, but like it always feels relevant. And I'm like, how did you always nail it every time? You know, every time I read a James piece, it, it feels like it slapped me in the face in some new way. Uh, I'm trying to see if there's anything in particular that I read before, except for Gatsby. Like, I love Gatsby. Gatsby is one of my favorite books because I think that Gatsby really, really nails so many subjects that I'm fascinated by from celebrity, wealth, fame, journalism, uh, criticism, and, and just like the human the human desire that love creates. Because like Gatsby was like a man stuck in time. He could not move forward beyond his love for Daisy. And I always thought that was such an intriguing concept to like get all this money, build this house, 
throw these parties, try to allure this woman. Like, you're a rapper. This is a rapper kind of thing. Jay-Z, this is Jay-Z trying to get Beyonce back type of yeah. shit, you know? <laughs> right, right, and I'm right. looking at that kind of characteristics and just think about how old that book is and how relevant it still is today. Like, you can still see those same themes in our music, in our culture, in our art. And those, those are the books that I feel like I want to write. Like, I'm not trying to write anything with a virus. I'm not trying to write anything COVID-19-esque. But I'm trying to land on a piece of art that when you pull it out of a drawer in 30 years, you're going to be like, how was Joe on time? How did he see the future and the past in such a way that it's always present? Yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. I mean, that's such a crazy thing to do because, like, you mentioned, you know, Gatsby being stuck in time. And, like, in a way, the things that we write are always going to be rooted in the time that we wrote them. But if you wrote it really well, then it, it still carries over as culture and as society evolves and as you evolve as a writer. Like, the mm -hmm. best things you write are still going to be current even though that they're rooted in that time. Facts. Yeah. It's like... I've been looking at profits a lot. Like, what does a profit do? A profit kind of predicts the future. But it, the future is such an amazing concept because the future isn't necessarily tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. But, like, if you're calling a shot a thousand years into the future, that means you're ahead of your time significantly. I feel like anyone ahead of their time is nothing but a profit. So once we catch up to you, you're going to look current. I think Bowie, profit. I think Charles Gambino, profit. I, I had this whole theory that Gambino's music is like all in different time frames. Like because of the internet was supposed to be ahead, like 2005. Awaken My Love is the past. This new album is the future. It's forward leaning. It's forward looking. It doesn't sound current at all. Like it's so weird. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, we might jump up 50 years and this album is probably going to be like how the world sounds. Like if you drop something in 2020, that's actually for 2045, you're a prophet. When we look back you on know, you, you're going to be ahead or you're going to be on time. And even in like the context that you're saying that, like I think almost, I don't know who specifically was in charge of it, but DJ Booth almost is prophetical because, you know, they were initially, you were initially successful because uh, you recognized that there was a gap to be filled with op-eds that discovery-focused blogs were leaving open and it coincided with the rise of Twitter conversations generated by tw trends and hashtags. And I think about the quote that DJ Booth saw the potential in giving readers something to talk about as mm -hmm. being very, very ahead of its time. So, you know, and obviously you've That's been crazy. there through that at the whole time. So kind of what has it felt like to be a writer, to be a member of DJ Booth, who is literally at the front of that kind of growth? I can't believe it sometimes. Like, I can't believe how it worked out because I, I don't think my thought on Abed was going to benefit me in the long run. Like, I just knew that's how I, how I felt. And I also think DJ Booth is just, like, really good as a platform for reading the room in a way. Like, kind of seeing where things are moving and then jumping ahead, kind of beating everyone to the punch in a sense because that's yes, what we kind of doing with the, the conversation office. yeah like just like that mentality and also trying to gather writers with unique voices i do believe something they they were 
prominent about doing is making sure that your readers knew who wrote it. They kind of gave every writer their own uh, audience specifically. Like I remember when Lucas was over there, Lucas had his type of writing. Nathan had his type of writing. Uh, Dylan has his type of writing. Donna has her type of writing. Yo has his type of writing. And they make sure to highlight who the writer is. So that way that the people know, like, oh, man, if you're looking for these kind of articles, he's the guy. She's the woman. And I don't really see a lot of sites doing that at the level DJ Booth has been doing it. And I think it pays off in dividends for the, the ability to have platform. I do think all writers need to kind of turn themselves. I don't look at myself as a platform, but I look at what I'm doing is for an audience. So the only way you can have an audience if people are aware that you wrote it. And I think that sites have to do their due diligence to make sure that their writers are, their audience is being pointed to who wrote the pieces and making sure that that is something they emphasize. This is the person that gave you that great article. It's not the publication. The writers make the pubs, man. The writers make the publications. Like they, they would be nothing without us. And I just feel like DJ Booth is something, is, is aware of that. They're aware of the value of the writer. And they make sure that the audience is aware of the value of the writer. You just sounded like you just sounded like MJ in the Last Dance when he said the players are the ones that make the team. <laughs> yo, I haven't watched it yet. I I, told, I just I just told a Go friend. On. My friend told me he said, "Yo, when you watch it, you're gonna be so inspired." And I Wait was till like, "Wait, you hear Word? that part too?" Yeah. Oh man. Okay. I'm amped now. I'm I'm trying. Yeah. I think I gave myself like two more weeks. I got some I got some pieces I gotta work on, and then hopefully when like it it opens up, I'm gonna I'm gonna fill my time with some MJ. Ryan, you have something? Yeah, like, hearing you say that about DJ Booth makes me realize that that quote about um, music journalism dying is absolute shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going no, man. Look, I don't know. I don't know. And I say that because the structure of things is changing. Like, you just see, I don't know. I think things are moving away from pubs and is moving more so toward who does the audience trust. Like, I feel like the audience is even getting to the point where they're picking the writers. And even if the writer isn't connected to a publication, that they still go to that person for their whatever. But I'm trying to figure out, like, what are, because I see a lot of writers starting Substacks, Medium's a thing, um, newsletters is a thing. I don't know how effective these forms of journalism will be in the long run, but I do see there is an increased interest in validating the writer and not validating a publication. So maybe the era of the publication might die, but the mm. journalism is still going to be impactful. Like there, People are going to get that from somewhere. It just might not be a complex. It might not be a double XL. It might not be a vibe. It might not be a DJ booth. But you're going to get that content from the people who deliver. Well, yeah. in a way... I almost see that as sort of a response to the pandemic, you know, with lo with all the layoffs that there have been for staff writers at publications, it opens up like so many more opportunities for freelance. And then, you know, if you're freelance writing, you know, you want to make sure that your readers are going to follow you to whatever publication that you're writing for. So you build those kind of platforms like your newsletter and you try to build that more reliable audience, you know, so that they're coming to you for your writing no matter where you're putting it. Facts. It's interesting trying to build that out because I think the writer being conscious of audience is like a double-edged sword because I think writing inherently 
again, it comes from the source. If you're the source of your ideas, then how do you pull your ideas out? Is it thinking about the audience or is it just thinking about what you're passionate about? But like, what if what you're passionate about does not align with what the audience desires from you? Do you start to cater to the audience? And again, that's when I feel like you end up starting to write things that you're not passionate about, things that you're not obsessing over. And I do think it affects the writing. Like, that's my biggest fear. That's why I can't, I try not to put too much stock into what the audience thinks of me. Like, I want them to decide if they want the pieces or not. I don't need them to like me. But if you want this, here you go. But I only do that because I feel like as soon as I start taking too much from them, they're going to start dictating what I do. And that's a scary place to be in because you start to like vie for their attention. So what happens when they move on? Are you going to chase them? How are you going to run them down? You know, like that's that becomes, again, desperation. Try to avoid desperation as much as possible, even desperation for audience. Like I can't I can't beg you to read. I don't I don't ever want to be in the position of a beggar. Hmm. Well, I don't I fully believe that believe that, that can't happen because I feel like it's the writers who push things to new places and it's the writers and I guess the art form that and the creatives that really di- dictate where things go and that's something that I learned from Baldwin mm. like the artist struggle for his inte- integrity right yes that entire speech is about how only the writers can make a certain report mm-hmm. and that sooner or later things will reach a point where people have no choice but to only believe in the report that only the poets can make. Like, and... Absolutely. The audience can't create that truth for themselves. But see, that's why you have to operate in truth. And that's where we're going, right? We're going to a place where the audience has to go to the writer for the report, for the, mm-hmm. the true report. That means you have to stay true to yourself, and that's why you have to report the stories that only you can tell. That's one thing that I really would give. That'd be the only thing I recommend to any writer. Tell the story only you can tell. Because if you're reporting that truth, they have to come to you for it. There's no one else that's giving them that truth. It's your story. It's your stories. So if we get to the point where all the writers are telling their personal stories, and not even like personal essays, but like only stories they can tell, we're all reporting the truth, then we have all the power. I don't know how that's going to work out financially. Because that's one thing, like, I'm just, I'm still trying to figure out writer finances in a way that is fair to the work, the effort, and the skill level. Because, like, you are, there there are writers that are better than others. And it's because they put in more work, more hours, more time, you know? Some have degrees, some don't. But I do believe, like, we have to find some way to pay people fairly for their work, for their time, and for their effort. And it's going to be to a point where you're going to start paying people for their name. Because now, like, some, some writers acclaim is what's really helping move these pieces. It's not just great pieces, but it's already, like, built-in audiences. It's, it's a support system there. Like, you should have to pay for that support system. Like, if you want these clicks and that person's writing and, and they're getting clicks, man, that that comes at a price. You don't have to pay that. Yeah. It's like athletes so I- or artists. Yeah, right. Something like that. I don't yeah. know how. I don't know how it works out. It's, writers and money has always been an odd thing, from past, present, and the future. And I and I think because it literally comes from nowhere. Like you can literally pull words out of thin air. You can construct them in sentences. Some people see a great value in that. Some people don't. 
So it's kind of hard to convince someone to pay you top dollar. Like a radio song, but it is like a whole thing. Like it's on the radio. It's a it's a pop record. So of course, once you have number ones in the country and all these different countries, like your value shoots up. But like, there's writers who don't have bestsellers who are extremely valuable. Like we can't use those yeah. same metrics to equate to like what a writer's worth is. Like what is a writer's worth? It's something I've been thinking a lot about because I don't really know how to equate it. Like how do you break down a writer's worth? And then how do you get close enough to that value so they're paid justly? Because I would think most writers would say they're not paid justly. So how do you how do you how do we how do we even that scale out? I think that's something that I would love to see uh become a bigger conversation in the future not just like pay writers more but like how do you make sure every writer gets their just due what are you know what are some of the the things that you think start to quantify you know a writer's worth because like the first thing i think of and i don't know if this is the right answer but the first thing i think of is what kind of an impact do they have on people and that means you know the size of the impact on individual people but it also takes into account you know, the the reach of their impact, you know, a smaller impact on a large number of people might be worth more than a large impact on just a few people. Or, you know, I can see it being the other way around, too. Well, I think that that is still within the metrics of clicks. Right? We're looking at, like, how many people you can reach because the value is in um, range. But, see, my only thing with that is, is, like, Man, some of the best pieces of content I might have came across this year has from, been from people with small audiences, small follower counts. Pieces that didn't blow up, but they were just damn good. And that's why I, I believe that the pitch, depending on what the pitch is, if the pitch is an original idea, like we're dealing with something here that is unique, something that is fresh, something that we feel like, oh man, we might need to pick some marketing dollars behind this because if we help this like grow, it could blow up. Not just because this writer has an audience, but like, oh man, they really brought us a great idea. And then if the writing that they deliver matches the pitch, oh, come on. doesn't really matter how big the audience is. Like, I, I personally believe that like having access to something fundamentally cool a fundamentally just like this is just excellent like it doesn't matter if it blows up or not man like it might it might take 10 years for that piece to resonate but like when it does you had the chance to be attached to it you had the honor of being the one to amplify that you had to be the you had the honor to deliver that to the world so like it's always attached to you you know like I'm always going to be attached to DJ Booth in some form of fashion and I think it's because they allowed me the space to be my most unique self you know, they, they very rarely turn down pitches. They very rarely turn down ideas. And, like, I even seen when, like, other publications turn something down and I ran it on DJ Booth, what happened? You know, I told, I told, I told Ryan the story about what happened. I'm not going to lie, I can't tell on the mic. But Ryan knows. <laughs> he knows the story that I'm referring to. And, like, I, I've yeah, had a lot crazy. of examples of things that I feel like people had said no to and I was able to get it published and I saw what it did. I saw who it reached. And it's yep. just like, I don't know. My whole mentality is that there's no such thing as a bad pitch. It's just not ready yet. 
I think it's great, like what DJ recognized or DJ Booth recognized in you super early on. Um, you know, w- like with that op-ed, like you said, you'd been on a two-month hiatus, and then you know you write that op-ed, and DJ Booth offers you the job, and they stay true to their word, and they come through on it. And like you said, like they recognize your truly unique perspective, and they just let you mm-hmm. run with that with the platform that you have. And that kind of mm-hmm. makes me think of, you know along the lines of also what you're talking about, like writers who are coming out and they are moving pieces with who they are as a writer and their identity. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of this quote that I think about all the time when we covered Little Richard on this podcast. And Ryan nice. drew my attention to this quote from Little Richard, where he said, I came from a family where my people didn't like rhythm and blues. Being Crosby, pennies from heaven, Ella Fitzgerald was all I heard. And I knew there was something that could be louder than that but I didn't know where to find it. And I found that it was me. So do you think that you've had an it was me moment like that where you filled a space that you didn't see filled before that? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you just said that. That's crazy. Um, it was, I, I, I recently took an acid tap just because I was, <laughs> I was I got a friend who hit me up said he has some acid. I was like, let me try some. And uh, I was thinking about how people do all these things from drugs to sex to drinking just to discover themselves. Like you go all, you go so far just to find yourself. It's, It's you the whole time. It's in you the entire time. You do all of this looking for yourself. It's right there. And that's something that like I I was able to kind of like surmise off the tab. I was like, oh shit, I've been looking for me this whole time. You're the answer. You're always the answer. And I think like I try to remind myself of that. Like I can't trick myself in thinking that I have to go outside of myself to find what I'm looking for when I am the answer. Like when it comes to writing pieces. Like, I can do all this research, but when I get down to write it, it's always going to be you. Like, I don't need no drugs. I don't need no alcohol. I don't need nothing else. I just Mm. need me. That is it. Because I've done it before, and I can do it again. That's beautiful, man. And that ties perfectly back into uh, this side of paradise. Yeah. (laughs) Fitzgerald really gave me a gym out the gate, man. (laughs) He really delivered me a good one. And that's that's what I'm saying. It's it's interesting because I feel like being at the booth for the last five years is what has given me so much clarity about writing, like having a job that has allowed me to write consistently. You know, like I I made enough money to keep writing. You know, I didn't get rich. I didn't have the, the biggest pay, but I got a chance to feel like like to fulfill my dream of being a writer. I was able to do that and I was able to do it in a way where I had audience and I had consistent work and I had all these things that to me that all writers had. So now I can think like a writer. I can live like a writer. I can act like a writer because I've had that experience. You need that experience. Like you can think you know about being a writer, but until you're able to get into that space and live as a writer, same thing. Like you can't be a rapper until you live as a rapper. And know what it means to put your life on the line for this, to pay your bills with this, to feed yourself and feed your family with this. It's like it changes your whole relationship to the art form. 
Yeah, you're mm. going to make me quit my job, man. <laughs> Look, man, don't do that. Don't go to college. <laughs> right. Joking. But, like, really, it's, I think quitting your job, this is actually my advice for anyone that wants to quit their job. You have to, you got to have your roof. Again, like, you got to have your roof. But you also need to prepare yourself to live your life as a writer, whatever that means. Because it's like the quitting is going to be fulfilling at first. And then comes the fear. <laughs> oh shit, I gotta do this. And then it's just going to be a roller coaster. So that's why it's best to get yourself a firm ground and a roof that's not gonna move. And if you're gonna take that chance, you take it. But you have to remember that, like, no matter what you foresee for yourself, that is not guaranteed. It's not. I think the only thing that's guaranteed is the effort you put in. And if you're prepared to outwork everyone else, if you're prepared to be the best, that's what I'm saying. Like, man, you might as well think you're the best if you're going to do it. Don't do anything if you don't think you're going to be the best at it. I, would, I, would, I hope every writer thinks they're better than me. I hope every one of my contemporaries think that they listen to this interview and like, he's trash. I hope so. Because you have to feel like I am the best at this because it's a hustle. You don't have to bust your ass for this. So, like, go ahead and just assume that you're busting your ass to be the best, that you're busting your ass to be immortal, that you're busting your ass to get the biggest check, and then go get that. Right. But you got to put the effort in. Say that one more time. So you have to put the effort in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, along with that many times within uh, the context of this interview, you've talked about the – the necessity of, of being hungry consistently. So I wanted to, to transition into kind of a personal question that I wanted to ask, which are, what are your five favorite food spots in Atlanta? Oh, man. Bro, I, don't <laughs> even, I don't even eat, man. What? <laughs> <laughs> man, ask my friends, bro. I really, I'm not a food guy. Like, oh, I, don't, yeah. I don't really eat. Maybe that's why I'm always so hungry. But, like, I don't know. Hey, food, there you go. Food is Mars. cool. <laughs> I always thought food was cool, man. I'm, I I prefer alcohol. I rather drink right. drinks. But yeah, it's it's weird because I know I know a lot of foodies now. Like I got a lot of friends who are like foodies, and I just feel like y'all like food that much. <laughs> like you eat it, and then what? You get hungry again. Like it's it's just I don't find food to be something fascinating. I find it well, to be a necessity. If I didn't have to eat, I wouldn't. Right. Well, what are your five favorite bars? Oh man. Um. I haven't been to a bar in so long. I missed them. Yeah, uh, true that. There's a there's a bar on Edgewood called Church, and I like it because it's like it's Jesus out. They have a ping pong table upstairs, and it's not even like a, a great bar, but it's just like it's a vibe. Like if you got people in town, they got the cozy ass couches, get you a nice little uh, cocktail. You just sit in there, and just chill out. Um. Oh, I've seen that bar. It's down the street from uh, Killer Mike's Barbershop. Yep. Yeah, it's right on Edgewood. Yeah, facts. facts that's, yeah. that's, that's like my go-to spot usually. Like if I'm just out, like me and the homies. There's also a spot called $3 Cafe on the south side that I'll go to. I got a homie. He told me, he was like, you'll never be too rich for a $3 drink. And I was like, <laughs> facts. That um, is facts. Where else do I go? I don't know, man. I got like a... 
I got like homies, like my homie, he works at this comedy club called Uptown that's on the south side. He's a bartender. I'll pull up on him. He'll make me a drink. Uh, I think it's better to have friends who are bartenders. I have an absurd amount of friends who bartend. That's so like I can always, always get me a good drink. It's yeah, just, you already you know. know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I'm never, I'm never, man. The five favorites. Or Ryan has sent me over. Uh, I know that's no. what we're trying. We're trying to make a oh, slick transition slick, into man. that. <laughs> ask me my top five favorite sunsets. It's like how I, said that. I was like, that's the most young right. thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, heard that. <laughs> top five. All right. Sunsets. Well, well, we might have to include the sunsets in this, but let's transition <laughs> into this thing that you're, that Yo's talking about. Um, so this is our our uh, final kind of question and answer section. Um, for our interviews that we're going to try to instill. And starting with you, Yo, since you're our first. Um, we're not into labeling anything the best and worst, which is an, assen- uh, uh, an essential part of Central Sauce's intention in journalism. We're just interested in your personal favorites and opinions. This is our three-part ending sequence, and we're calling it Who, What, and Where's the Sauce? The first section that I'm going to start with, and then Ryan and Brando will each have their own section, is what Yo just previously described as five of your five right now. So let's start. Your five, your five favorite rappers. Oh man, this was hard. Um, yeah, Earl Sweatshirt, Little yes. Wayne, Jay Z, Black Black Thought, and uh, Gil Scott Heron. Oh, that's a crazy five. Yeah, that's, that's my that, that last one was my curveball. Those are my and that's like rap, man. Like I really listen Fact. to those guys when I yes. think about like. Not just like lyricists, because like like they all represent something different to me though, as far as like being a rapper. So yeah, those five right there, they were hard. That was a hard one to pick. That's awesome. What are your five favorite albums right now? Uh, that was another hard one. Uh, Frank Ocean, Blonde, Mavi, Let the Sun Talk, Little Baby, My Turn, Mac Miller, Swimming, and Nina Simone. I put a spell on you. Oof. Yeah, I love that last one. I'm from Baltimore, so Nina Simone will always be. Oh man, the goat. She was a goat, goat artist. Yeah. What are your five favorite songs right now? Whew, this was another hard one. Uh, Kenny Mason, Air Desire, Mavi Self Love, Little Baby Grace, Frank Ocean for Tour Free, Little Wayne Took His Time. Mm. Five favorite writers? Oh, this right is another now. hard one. Man. They all just- <laughs> <laughs> Tony Morrison, James Baldwin, Ernest Hemingway, Zora Neale Hurston, and the writers of the King James Bible. And then last but very wait. much. Oh, yeah, go for it. A real quick note. I read on, oh, where was this? On the King James Bible, there was a theory that it's actually Shakespeare who wrote the King James Bible and that Shakespeare was just a pen name of King James. And that's yeah. not just a crazy, like there was a lot of like Dude, stuff that back that there I don't remember. There are so that. many who is Shakespeare theories that I've heard so <laughs> many times. Yeah. That that would be hard. Like, I'm, it was, I'm oh, reading it. Go ahead. I remember I'm where gonna, I saw it. It was actually, uh, it was actually Malcolm X who debated that theory. That's actually wow. where I remember seeing that. Really? That it that it's actually Shakespeare who, uh, or that King James is Shakespeare. Shakespeare. That Shakespeare was a pen name because back then, like 
British royals, they weren't supposed to be into the arts. It wasn't considered very royal. It was more like yeah. peasantry. Um, so a lot of royals who did artistic things like writing, they used different pen names. And because if you think yeah. about it, like who the hell other than a royal person has the amount of time to write all the stuff that Shakespeare wrote? Yeah. There's another theory that it's like, a. Uh, am not going to remember the specific Duke, but I went to an arts high school for acting and one of my, like the heads of our department was so into this, it being this one Duke and he was like, made it his goal to convince all of us to say that it was this one royal guy. That's amazing. I had no idea. <laughs> like I got to look that theory up now because it's like, I don't know. I think the Bible is so poetic and, and as a language. And uh, another classic, like, it's timeless, you know? Like, you're trying to be as immortal as the writers of the Bible. That's what I'm trying to nail, you know? Like, I don't know how many copies of the Bible have been sold, but I know it's more than enough. The royalties on the Bible must be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so last of the five for your five right now. Besides this one, what are your five favorite recent interviews by you or other people? Uh, I copped out on one of these. I think Jeff and Eric is the real, like their interviews yeah. are just great. Like I, I think what they've been doing since the quarantine has been uh, fascinating. So that's my one like video. I think I would recommend everyone to watch Jeff and Eric interviews. Uh, but the other four is Mac Hami. I got waves. Uh, that's a great interview. Uh, Frank Ocean is finally free, mystery and tech. That's John Caramonica, the New York Times. Young Thug came from nothing. Will Stephenson, Fader. And Fonte's brutal honesty about chasing dreams and aging in hip-hop by Yo would be another interview that I, I recommend. This one of my favorites. Fonte is the, uh, an incredible interview. If you can talk to Fonte, I recommend anyone talk to Fonte. He is amazing. I think we've got work to do for even... I'm allowed to look at Fonte. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you mentioned Future of Free by Frank Ocean, and I want to say rest in peace to Ryan Bro. That that broke my heart. Yesterday. That broke my heart. I, I still haven't processed it. Man. I don't even think something so tragic. And it's, it's tragic for a lot of different reasons, but like, man, anytime a 19-year-old kid dies in a car accident... It's just like, man, you have so much life. And a car accident, to me, always signifies um, how unpredictable life is. Like, that means that he left that house that day, that he probably talked to his brother, that they always thought he was going to come back. And that's like, cars, cars scare me, man. Like, cars frighten me because I feel like they really are uh, a testament to how dangerous life is. Like, cars are the biggest representation that life is not a game. Because you, once you get your license, once you hit that, 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 that point of going 60 miles per hour, man, it's like anything can happen to you at any moment. You know, like, I, I didn't have a tire fly off my car on the expressway. Yeah, man. Just, like, just flew off my car. Like, just, I could not believe it happened and like I was fine like the car just came to a stop I was like I landed in like the median and I was just sitting there I called my dad and I was like my tire just flew off he was like what he was like are you okay I said yeah I'm fine but like 
It flew off. We didn't know. Like, we still to this day have no clue what happened. It just flew off. And I, I'm an avid driver. I drive pretty consistently. I don't have any fear of the road. But I do believe, like, I look at cars as a metaphor for, like, unpredictability and how we need to always be, like, wear your seatbelt. Like, I think about that in life. Like, wear your seatbelt. Always be safe. I always think about, like, how you can protect yourself and the drivers around you because, like, cars, man, like, they they are a beautiful, beautiful, dangerous thing. Yeah, it's scary how, like, pushing us forward just brings, like, new dangers. Facts. You know. Yeah. Anyway, that's a lot to get into. That's yeah, that's a whole another like, <laughs> that's another that's another rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so the next section of our um, signature ending is called "Too Much Sauce" because of the name of the podcast uh-huh. and the website. <laughs> Just in case no one made the connect. No, I think you got it. So, uh, so the first question is: Who's got the most sauce in the music industry currently, and why? Now, we had to debate over which is, like, is this the same as your favorite rappers? But we decided that source, having source is different to being your favorite. And so. it's in the industry overall. And in the industry, yeah. How do y'all define sauce? Hmm. Uh, that's, up, that's up to you for this question. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Think source is me, in the eye of the beholder. I think sauce is, it's like a presence. Like... I, I think, like, sauce is undeniable. Like, if somebody has sauce, like, everybody knows that they have sauce. There's not really a question about, like, oh, like, you really think that? Like, no, I don't think so. Like, I think it's undeniable. Like, J. Cole, I, I, I just get the impression that when J. Cole walks in a room, people know he's there before they even see him. And, like, that's right. sauce to me. Right. Dang. This is actually a good one. I'm trying to see in the music industry who has the sauce. Oh, man, I know people are going to call me about this one. (laughs) (laughs) Who do I think has sauce? Who do I talk to? Mm. Man, you know who I really like? Mac Hami. Yes. Mac Hami got all the sauce, man. Uh, The Mac Hami interview that I selected, he has this quote where he says, I am the vendor. And, like, me and my homie, uh, Michael Penn, we say that to each other all the time because he talks about, like, selling his albums for so much money, and he was just like, this is designed. I am mm-hmm. the vendor. I sell it. I set the price. And I think his mentality is very forward-leaning into the artist accepting their role as the vendor. Like, why are we still doing distro deals when the internet is the marketplace. It's like, you don't you need a distro if you're selling CDs, but like, if you are able to set up a shop, set a price, and create a demand, and have people come to you as the vendor, cut the middleman out. That's something I'm always trying to figure out. It's like, man, is it, do people get deals because they feel like they need to get a deal? If that's the practice, or have we not reached a point where artists believe that they are the vendor and they can set their price and that the people that they have will pay that price? So, that makes me think of your uh, interview with Brent Fay as his manager, which oh, is actually time. an example when we were talking about this question. That's actually an example I brought up for making it, you know, so that's industry wide and not just artists. 
because thinking of like Brent Faye as his manager, like he had the sauce. Like and oh, that's yeah. what you guys got to. Oh in that yeah, interview. yeah. I love Ty. Ty is like the smartest person I know, possibly. Like every time I talk to him, he uh, inspires me to be as forward thinking as possible. Um, and I think that's the thing. Like I, I like thinkers. I like people who are getting a little bit further away from contemporary thinking and leading a little bit more into uh, experimentation, not with just form, but with like the marketplace. Taj is one of those guys who, to me, is always going to be looking forward because he, he sees the game for what it is. Like He's not trying to play no one else's game. He knows his game, and the game he's playing is a, is a long-term game. It's, it's, it's a game in the future. It's not a game in the present. So, like, he's, he's, he's incredible. He's incredible. He's someone that I, I definitely plan on working with more. Dude, Matt Comey is the best pick for this question. Because he has Even with so him much hiding source. his face, man, like, he's dude, been on the way. Dude. dude, he has so much source, he might not even exist. He might not be a real person. <laughs> I've, I've, it's it's like, very hard. Honestly, man, like, I kind of think if I can continue to avoid taking pictures in 100 years, that's how they'll talk about me. Like, did he really exist? That's that Shakespeare shit. Yeah, I wouldn't mind it. I wouldn't mind if that's the question. Like, if there's enough work left behind to make people question, was he real? I wouldn't be mad. I don't, I don't need to be known. I like to be rich. Mm. I don't need to be known. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dude, people talk about Mac differently. They do. When Mac Comey drops an album, it's a people use different language. Like you've never said expeditiously before in your life, but you said it when you talked about Mac Comey. Like it's yeah. insane. Yeah, man. It's, he he it's like he's built it out in such a very odd way that even I can't fully understand it. But like when you listen to him talk, he doesn't even talk about himself. Like I've never heard a rapper call themselves the vendor. I was like, what? Like what? Like you can say that. You can use that terminology to the, like, express what you're bringing to the marketplace as the vendor. You set the price. Like You don't have to bend that for nobody. I wish I could sell a book for $400. They'll look at me like I'm crazy. But, you know, when you're the vendor, you can do that. Yeah. When you have the source, you can do that. Man, sorry. Like, <laughs> that answer's so good. It's genuinely because you haven't even got to the part you haven't got to the part like you haven't even got to his rhyming yet and the way he decides to rhyme over on instrumental is stupid like that's you wouldn't listen to anyone else doing what he does but because it's him it's just this works (laughs) he's in another league he's in another league and I think that I hope the people who listen to Mac start to look for more rappers like him because then that's why mm. I think like there'll be a new underground. Like where wow. there's a new language, a new style, a new way of expressing uh, hip-hop. You know, like I think there's going to be like an underground underneath the underground in its own way. And I think that could be very cool. Oh, yo, you are speaking Ryan's language. <laughs> <laughs> I do <didn't laughs> <show up>, <laughs> Before I go on about Rap Ferrero for a bit of time <laughs> yeah. on this podcast, that's, let's that's move on the to the real, next the real rabbit hole right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so outside of music and journalism, whose level of source do you admire the most in your life? 
I would say my grandmother. She a boss. Like, my grandma, Della, she's like, <laughs> yo, she's so cute, man. She's been knitting masks for us for COVID-19, right? <laughs> like, so as soon as she saw what was going on, like, she just got to knitting. Like, she can make anything. <laughs> like, she, she's like, you know, like, early, early, well, like, mid-70s. You know, like, she's getting up in age, but, like, she don't got no fear, like, when it comes to this. Like, she's such a thug about, like, COVID. She's just like, well, guess I'll make some masks. Like, that's her reaction <laughs> to this pandemic that's, like, taking out just, like, people in, like, just droves. Just, like, for her to just be like, well, I'm just going to make some masks. Like, just, like, that kind of energy is, like, what I want to approach journalism with. Like, oh, journalism is dead? Guess I'll write another article. Like, like, yo, you just got to keep, like, whatever is going to keep you alive. You just got to just stick to that thing. If you say a mask keeps us alive, we're going to make masks. If you think that, like, op-eds is going to keep this alive, we're going to write op-eds. You know, it's not, mm. it's not second guessing. It's getting right to the source. That's my thing. Like, she's, she's always shown me that, like, whatever it is that you want, get to the source. So that's my dog. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Brandon, I'll start to you. So, last question is, who do you think would be the best journalist for us to interview next on this podcast? Man, I got so many friends who do this. <laughs> like, they would be great. And I was really thinking about this. Uh, but I'm going to be a little biased here. This is just me. But, like, I think you, you give should... it. If you give an answer from DJ Booth, I want an answer from outside DJ Booth, too. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. No way, man. That's not fun. That wouldn't be fun. Even though even though I think you should interview Donna. Like, that's that's without question. Uh, that's down. Like, that's, Donna who we, Dylan, that's who we thought. Like, so. like, you can go anyone from the DJ Booth and interview them. It'll be a great interview. But that's not what I want. That's not even fair. That's just like, <laughs> like, come on. Uh, I was going to say Christina Lee. My partner in crime mm, had something yeah. to say. She... To me, is uh, not only just an impeccable journalist, but like I think she she has been in the game for so long, and she has operated as a freelancer, and she has done so much. Like if you go to her site and look at her credentials, and look at the pieces she's written and the people she's interviewed, like her career trajectory is so crazy to me. Like she she's someone I believe can do anything, can write anything, and has no ceiling. So I believe talking to her, you're going to have an amazing conversation. Christina Lee, pull up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, close. (laughs) All right, man. We almost went for like three hours. That was incredible. (laughs) That was a long combo. I didn't know. Oh, my God. I I just lost my recording. Yeah, we went ham. The kind of really absurd... The really absurd thing about all this is we skipped a lot of questions, too. Oh, really? <laughs> Man. That's nuts. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sincerely, though, thank, I mean, thank you for your time. Like, let yeah, alone, dude, you know. Thank you so much. Like, locking in a one-hour interview would have been exceptional. <laughs> But to the, have the fact that, like, we can have this conversation with you for almost three hours, man. Like, sincerely, thank you. That is nuts. I mean, no, thank Genuinely. you for having me. I, I I try to take as much time for writers, for people who are interested in writing. Because when I was, before I got to DJ Booth, and I was doing that, like, that four-year period with no one listening and no one reading, I was just trying to find a mentor. 
And like, I couldn't find one. Like, I could not find anyone to give me the time of day. So I always said, if I ever got to a place where people just wanted your time, then I would give it without care. Like, without a care. Like, well, if you need four hours, I'll give you four. Because it's just, I, I understand that it means something to give people your time when they ask for it. So, you know, I just appreciate you guys being interested to talk to me. Bro, just know that that appreciation of your time is wildly reciprocated. Like tenfold. Like, seriously, yeah, I don't know if I write the way I write if I'm not reading your pieces like five years ago, in the last five years. Like, See, that's, the impact that you've had on my writing in particular, for myself, I can say, has been insane. The way you blend like this kind of prose into your journalism is beautiful to me. Thank you, man. It's, it's, again, that's why I try not to think too much about myself because, like, in my mind, right, and, like, people like you don't even exist. People, like, who are a bit, like, influenced by what I've done because, like, it's just, that feels like such a big thing. Like, I can't even fathom that because, and again, that's why it's so wild that writing is a profession you can get paid for because you're, you're literally pulling words out of thin air. You're combining these sentences from nothing but your thoughts. So you, you write these pieces in your room, and I've, I've seen rappers talk about, like, yeah, I wrote this a song in my mother's kitchen, and now I get a chance to perform it for the world. Like, that's such a head yeah. rush, man. Like, it, it blows your so mind much. that you can do that. But that's why, like, I, I really want to be an advocate for trying to find a way for writers to get paid adequately because I think we deserve... I always thought, man, like, if rappers are rich, why aren't the writers rich? Like, we write about them. Like, there has to be some type of, like, distribution of this wealth because, like, if the labels are all asking me for one list of reviews and I don't got a deal, I might need a deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something. At least a percentage. A piece, a piece of something. But, like, I understand that we can't take money from them because you can't be paid for your criticism. But, like, I just mm-hmm. think that there has to be some type of union to distribute the money. If this is the highest thriving music and the music journalism for this music... Is, is being impacted by the writers, like why is the wealth not distributed to the people who are upholding the, the, not only the language and the storytelling, but the criticism? It's like everyone should be taken care of. If there's money, everyone should be taken care of. That's just the way I see it. It should be taken care of fairly. But, you know, I get it. I get that we don't live in a society where the writers are favored. The rappers are, because they are the stars. So maybe we all need to go get chains and grills, but... <laughs> you got to start taking some selfies, yo. Nah, man. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really trying to see how far I can go without showing my face. It's really, at this point, a personal mission to disappear. Right. Okay, yo, that's facts, too, because when I was writing, like, our frame for this interview, I was Googling, like, trying to find a little picture of you to put at the top of the frame, and, yo, you do not show up on Google Images. Yes. Like, with just a, just a quick search. That man. is a dedicated effort, and I'm hoping <laughs> with every year I just vanish. It's something... No, it's funny, because when I was young, like, 12, 13, my mother, when my spice was hot, my mother was like, don't Pitch your information on the internet. They'll steal your identity. So, like, <laughs> at 13, that was, like, my biggest fear. So, I would look mm. at people taking selfies, and I was like, your identity stolen. 
you don't even know it. <laughs> like, that was always my biggest fear. So now, like, when I look at, like, apps like TikTok and they're talking about all the, the information they take, and I'm just like, it's probably best not to be pitting too much online. Mm-hmm. Just, like, mm-hmm. for security purposes. Because one day, you might look up, there's another Ryan walking around outside. Because you, you agreed to some terms of uh, conditions, and they were allowed to clone you. <laughs> Honestly, if technology gets that far, I'm happy. As a physicist, as a man of science, I'm like, I respect that. It's cool. <laughs> I, have a, uh, I have a short story I've been meaning to write where uh, iTunes, like, update 801, is like you agreed to it, and they get your firstborn son. So this guy downloads iTunes just to play this Lil Wayne album, and 20 years later, when he gets his firstborn, like Apple shows up, like he's ours. <laughs> That's why I keep thinking it's gonna happen. I keep agreeing to things and not reading them. I'm like, man, they gonna come take my son one day. <laughs> oh man, I wanna read that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yo, have you ever? I meant to ask you this. Uh, well, I guess it's better to ask off off air. But did you ever write the the Gatsby is Hove trying to get Beyonce back piece? No, man. I probably should. Right? Like that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. That is good, man. I come up with these things just for <laughs> no reason. Like that's what I'm saying. Like I just have fun making things up, and yeah. like I'll I'll take a step back and be like, that was good. Like uh, I had a homie of mine that I told. That for like the book of Yo, I was flirting with this idea that I wanted to do an audio book where the rappers would read the articles about themselves. And like, he was like, yo, why didn't you do that? And I was like, I don't know. Forgot. <laughs> like, I didn't think about it. Like, it's just certain ideas that I come up with. Um, and I got, I do have, I have a Gatsby-esque story that I'm working yeah. on. That's work, that's a, the, the medium is outside journalism. So yeah. it's been fun mm-hmm. doing some creative writing. But it's such a Gatsby, such a profound book in my in my mind because I think the best thing that Fitzgerald did is that he made that house the setting. Like he was able to create such a good setting. I'm gonna send you this article, Ryan, about how uh, Gatsby, I mean how Fitzgerald attached um, gossip magazines into the storyline and how like how big gossip magazines were in New York around that time period like it's really interesting like the level of details in that book so I really find it to be fascinating maybe I should do something with Jan Beyonce and like because I thought that when he mentioned like chasing her around Paris I was like you know how much money you need to chase somebody (laughs) around Paris yeah that's a a rich breakup (laughs) (laughs) that's wealth yeah. All right, man. So I think we'll start to wrap the yo. I'm gonna throw it to you, uh, hot one style. That camera, that camera, that camera. So what's going on? <laughs> oh, you say what? <laughs> to, uh, tell us what's going on, man. Where can we find you? Oh, read you, hear you? oh man, that that's funny. Um, you can find me on Twitter at yo thirty one. Um, you can read me at DJ Booth. I don't know. I hate promotion. Like, I really <laughs> hate it. Like, I try and be... Like, I hope you find me. That's my thing. Like, I hope mm. you find me. Like, if you like this conversation, I hope you find me. That's always kind of been my energy. Like, I don't want to tell people where to find me at. Like, I want you to hear this and, like, let me seek this person out. That's yeah. always, like, my energy. But, you know, I'm on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. 
that's cool. I don't I don't do Instagram because I feel like I don't like pictures. I don't do anything where <laughs> pictures are involved. Uh, but yeah, I don't do TikTok. I don't do any of those apps. <laughs> but you can come find me on Twitter. I got jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, man. Also, I'm gonna promote you a little bit. Check out the uh, video series that you're working oh, on. Oh yeah, you know what? That's why I will promote, promote that. that. <laughs> Please promote that. Yo, this is amazing. Rap portraits is Rap my portraits. my favorite thing I've worked on this year. It's a documentary series that I did with my partner in crime, Holland Gallinger. Um, we are building it out to be a day in the life series. We have episode one on YouTube at Rap Portraits. Is starring uh, one of my favorite rappers right now, Mavi. And I sent Ryan like the early cut of it, man. And th- yeah. that's when we really connected. And I was so mm-hmm. excited by his reaction. And he really uh, gave me a boost of confidence to release it because it was it was really one of the first pieces of content I've done outside of DJ Booth and outside of any like major publication. It was just me and my, my homie. And uh, it's still one of my favorite things that I've done all year. It's a beautiful thing, man. And many of those to come with many. Oh videos. man, it's it's going to be really really dope, man. Like I gotta tell you something off the record. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> after after okay, let's wrap it then because I want to hear that. Uh, thank you to Brandon and Mickey. Go and promote yourselves, guys. Yeah, um, check me out on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Subscribe to my newsletter with the link in bio. Uh, this time next week, my newsletter will come out with a nice little blog post about this interview. So check it out yeah uh mickey again uh follow me on twitter at mickey montebello and uh you'll see all my updates there peace out yeah and i've been ryan gore thank you so much to yo i have nothing but to promote but this interview and my anthology for brown people so if you're brown follow me on twitter at ryan gore and yeah i'll leave it there subscribe uh review send us your articles it's This episode of In Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Michaela Back of the Central Source Creative Collective, and Joe Phillips of DJ Booth. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth Film Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Vasti, and it's your records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. It's a Barcy, Chill Records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and Leo Phillips. can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. Mm-hmm.